Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hey everyone, it's John. Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to add something, which is that we recorded this a couple weeks ago. So if you're wondering why we did not talk about Taylor, this was recorded BF before Folklore. But I'm kind of glad that that was the case because it allowed us full focus to talk about the chicks. Check it out. Welcome to the New York Times podcast. You're There's Your Trouble. Of music news and criticism, I am your host, John Caramonica. That was Gaslighter, so you know what time it is. It's Chicks Popcast, the Chicks, nay, the Dixie Chicks. I didn't get to write about Gaslighter, which I was kind of bummed about. So I wanted to be able to have a conversation about it with some folks who had been thinking hard about it. Gaslighter, it's the the fifth major label Chicks album. They're obviously the, the three records that predate that. It comes at a, a particularly interesting moment in terms of the political turmoil in the country right now. And also, the Chicks album is that rare opportunity for a group or a musical act that was very influential and then stepped away to come back and still make a record that feels very current in part because of the table that was set for them by the people that they influenced. So this is not a nostalgia album. This is not an album that feels like it's coming out of left field or even worse feels completely out of tune with the larger musical conversation and also social conversation. This is an album that seems to arrive at just the right moment, anticipated by the work of Taylor Swift and Miranda Lambert and and Casey Musgraves. And also from a production perspective, you know, Jack Antonoff did a lot of this record and Jack has done a lot of the female singer-songwriter pop of the last seven or so years. That's been really important. So the chicks re-entering the fray at this moment it's just like being embraced by the last 10 years of history which is must be welcoming given what harsh treatment they were subjected to in the early 2000s when they were excised from country music and essentially were pushed i don't know if they walked away but they were certainly pushed so to talk about the chicks the new album the magical idea of what might have happened if that day in 2003 had gone differently and where Gaslighter fits in the larger discography of the Chicks, we got two folks calling in today. Julie Height is going to call in. Julie is a country music critic and journalist for many years. And Carl Wilson, who is the pop critic at Slate, is going to call in. And we're going to have a big old confab about Gaslighter and the Chicks. Julie, hello. Hello. Julie writes about country music for NPR, for us at the Times, anywhere you get hot country critical goss there's julie she's right there 
And first of all, Julie, no stranger to podcast. We should say no stranger. Right, to right, right. It's good to be back. You participate in the only remotely taped podcast. Well, no, one of two remotely taped podcasts, which is when I went to Nashville and, and sat with you and Anne. So Julie's been on podcast. Dialing in from Canada, a safer country, uh, I think. <laughs> Carl Wilson. Carl. Carl, wait, Carl, why why is this your first time on Popcast? Why have you turned me down so many times? Uh, I don't think that question is for me to answer, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Carl is the pop critic at Slate. You know Carl's book about Celine Dion and the boundaries and fragile edges of taste. You're up on that. First time on Popcast, definitely my fault. Very excited. Carl's here. Julie's here. Yo, there's a lot to talk about with the chicks and not all of it has to do with gaslighter gaslighter is the album we're going to talk about that we're also going to talk some broader stuff we're going to go back in chicks history a little bit hopefully but i wanted to start off with a question that has been eating at me which is i think i read and i can't remember which piece it might have been in ann's piece and powers npr i can't remember where this came up But I feel like someone made reference to the fact that this chick's album is the last album to fulfill their contract with Columbia. Is that accurate? Am I? Am I? Yeah, I read. I read that as well. I think I read it in uh, a Billboard profile by Melinda Newman. Yeah, I read it the same place. Although I did mention it in my piece too. But yeah, their their original plan was to make a a album of covers to fulfill the contract, and then. um, and then when when Natalie felt like she had songs to write, they jettisoned that plan and did this album. And for the record, we do not consider hiring Jack Antonoff, who has been responsible for much of the impressive pop music of the last five to seven years. We do not consider that a cover. We just consider it hiring Jack Antonoff, just for the record. <laughs> um, but here's what that made me think, right? The Chicks have not put out a record in over a decade. And they arrive into this moment that is obviously very culturally fraught because of what's happening with the political situation in the country. They also arrive post-Miranda, post-Taylor, post-Country Taylor, post-Pop Taylor, post-Retrenchment Taylor. There are all these things that have happened in that time period. And I was wondering if you think if the chicks had come with a very similar energy two years ago, four years ago, six years ago, would it have felt quite as timely? Because there's something that feels very specifically timely about right now. Do you think that that could have happened in a different moment, you know, even pre-Trump? Would the energy have been similar? You're not asking if we think that it would have had a different relationship to the country format or radio airplay or that kind of thing, right? No, no, no. Because I feel like the chicks along with like almost every act making popular or popular adjacent music right now, it's less and less about format. It's much more about like, how are you enacting your, your ongoing narrative with the people who support you? So I'm not worried about format. I'm more just curious because there was something very poignant about hearing a record like this from this group at this moment. And I wonder if a similar poignancy could have happened in these other climbs. I think that putting this record out, pre the Trump era would definitely have felt massively different. I kind of think that it might have felt pretty similar any time since 2016. And one of the things that 
one could level at this album a little bit is that maybe it feels a little belated that they're kind of a beat behind the moment compared to where it might have been if they'd done this a couple of years ago. But yeah, definitely it's very conditioned by the times. And like one of the things that's interesting is like the title track, which was the first single out, and then March March, which was the second single. Like both of those suggested that this was going to be this kind of massively political album because both of them had those very contemporary political overtones. And then, you know, it turns out that that's, that that's not the case, which I'm overall kind of glad about. But but it definitely sort of set up that question, you know, coming off of their last big moment in 2006 with, uh, with Not Ready to Make Nice, the question of whether it was a continuation of that kind of polemical record was something that we didn't know till it showed up. And, and in some ways it is, in some ways it isn't, but it certainly isn't like a topical record through and through. Before we even get super deep into the themes, where do you rank this record amongst Chick's records? I don't know if it's better than the first three. Carl, in your review, I feel like maybe you alluded to the fact that you don't think that either. Julie, what do you think? I mean, I don't I don't feel like it's useful at all to rank them. I I found myself oh my thinking I I found myself <laughs> thinking more about in what ways it connected to or, you know, carried on a through line from from the first albums because it is what I consider to be a string band pop album and it is I mean, there's so many questions that we can consider about alternate histories or you know what ifs alternate timelines and this album is itself you know it it could have been another direction that the country mainstream could have evolved in since they're working with string band elements because they're they're deeply knowledgeable about bluegrass and western swing and all of these things that kind of played into you know what we know as as country music and then they also because of their choice of producer and what they're interested in doing now and their songwriting collaborators it's very much grounded in pop of the moment so it's kind of like an alternate look at relating to musically relating to where they came from and what they're grounded in musically, you know. Extremely slick non-answer to the question. But that's cool. <laughs> Extremely, very solid, considered non-answer. I like it. I, I like but it. I, Carl, you pointed out in your piece for Slate that they are attaching themselves generationally to pop innovators that have come along since then and to activists and agitators that are teens and 20-somethings. And I definitely was thinking a lot about that too. And I think that that's just kind of their orientation. And it's really smart for them because, I mean, John, when you talk about them being post-Taylor Swift or post-Miranda Lambert or post-Casey Musgraves, post-Maddie and Tay, you know, when I went back and listened to Sinwagon from their early recordings, I heard a straight line from from that performance to Miranda Lambert. And like, there's so many things that they did in terms of just striking a particular tone that seemed very of its moment and of its generation that I think all of those artists have done in the years since them. 
what that puts me in mind of is like, obviously, if you think of the original Dixie Chicks arc, right, there is a break in that arc. It doesn't kind of go to whatever the net, like in so much as there's a natural finish, it doesn't kind of go to a natural finish or mid place or, or, or so on. There is a break. And when I, I also went back and listened to all the early Dixie chicks records when they were still called the Dixie chicks. Uh, I went back <laughs> to listen to all those records in the last week. And also I've been thinking a lot about people who self-consciously or, unconsciously were helping to complete the arc or carry on the arc that the, that the Dixie chicks put in motion. And I'm glad you mentioned Casey. It was on my mind with Casey. It was certainly on my mind with Taylor. And I think it's interesting to see the chicks returning at this point, almost kind of to pick up the baton of some of the work that was done in their stead kind of, or work that they helped create the circumstances for that then went and lived through the music of other artists. And then they arrive back into frankly, a fairly welcoming musical environment where they are beloved and also influential upon the people who Carl, as you point out, intergenerationally they're drawing from. One of the things about them not completing that arc, right. Is that you have to think of that baton as having been like knocked forcefully out of their hands at the time. And so they're returning with this kind of elder statesman weight on their shoulders where they symbolize something much larger than themselves for all of those artists and all of the controversies about about women in country over the past decade were all presaged by their treatment in the 2000s and all of the work that people have done since then. And so when they come back to sort of reassume their mantle and their voice, it is that question of how do they live up to that legacy? And I think it's a very canny thing to be like, we're going to pick up from the people who picked up from us and we're going to do it kind of explicitly and audibly so that we don't seem like we're just emerging out of history. We seem like we've been here all along. And that goes to your point, Julie, about this being string band pop, country adjacent pop. They emerged in country at a time when obviously there were some artists who wrote their own songs, but it wasn't yet an expected thing that a big star would be a writer artist. And it definitely wasn't necessarily an expected thing that a, a star act would be singing from a posture that felt personalized or particular or confessional or that they would be trying to communicate in that way. But they, in their own kind of discography, we heard them choosing songs and writing songs that felt meaningful coming from them, that had a definite vantage point and and perspective. And then when that big break with the format happened and they went off and finally really doubled down on writing an album themselves and took a very particular confrontational posture, at that very moment was when Taylor Swift was really breaking through as a more confessional singer-songwriter type model in the world that they left behind. And that's certainly a component of what Miranda Lambert does and what Casey Musgraves does and what a number of other artists do. And it's now part of the expectation and the landscape. So it's interesting to hear them leave off with 
those songs that felt like they were self-expression and catharsis and saying something, summing up what they'd been through was, was at the forefront of their mind at the time when they made that album. And then they've come back and done something that where they're telling a much more, in some ways, on a lot of those tracks, a much more intimate story, still confrontational and still speaking to a broader world, but they've made the the personalized move in their own arc. And they had a whole lot to do, I feel like, with putting that in motion in the first place. You're talking about con- sort of a confessional approach within the genre. Obviously, so much of what happened in the genre, you know, in heavy ways in the 90s and 2000s and 2010s was kind of anti-confessional. But I do think that I'm sure some of the country that they grew up on to the degree that they did, obviously slightly different relationship between Natalie and, and Emily and Marty, there's a confessional element in that. It's not, it's not, you know, sort of totally coming out of the ether. Well, I mean, they were digging a lot of bluegrass and a lot of Texas singer songwriters. And Natalie had that close proximity to Joe Ely's work since her dad played in his band for so long. And her dad was working with a lot of singer-songwriters out of Texas. So they started choosing that kind of material as outside material, like Patty Griffin songs and Daryl Scott songs and that kind of thing. And then they were leaning into it or kind of maybe figuring out how they wanted to tackle that themselves over time. I want to throw out kind of a left field idea that I arrived at while listening to the older Dixie Chicks records. Ooh, a little right. bit of a left field idea. And if someone has already, ri- I just want to say in advance, if somebody wrote this, I did not read it. I didn't know. <laughs> there might be like seven pieces that say this, but anyway, I'll just say it. And if that, and if you guys read it somewhere, you can just tell me that you read it somewhere. Um, okay, so I was listening to Wide Open Spaces, right? And Gaslighter is obviously. It's a breakup record. It's a divorce record. It's a a record in which there is a main character, the protagonist. There is a partner who has been poorly behaving. And then there's this kind of shadow of a third person who has come in and caused issues, whether proactively or just by, by dint of their presence. There's a very similar energy to some songs on Wide Open Spaces, which has more songs about a third person, a kind of my relationship is on the rocks. Perhaps you are this, there's a direction moving in your direction. There was a fair amount of that on wide open spaces more than I remembered. And it's interesting to see this. If this is indeed the, the completion of the chicks full circle, if this is going to be the last chicks album or at least the last for a while, it was interesting to, to hear the two slightly different approaches to the similar subject matter. There is a, a power and a force on Gaslighter. Whereas I feel like on Wide Open Spaces, there is almost, I don't want to say resignation, but there is something in kind of like the country tradition, the Jolene tradition, as it were, that's a little bit more on Wide Open Spaces. Whereas this is like, we're older, we're not going to take it anymore, which is the Gaslighter approach. Just throwing that out there. (laughs) That's interesting. Are you talking about I Can Love You Better and There's Your Trouble, those those songs? Oh, oh, man. We might have to play that. (laughs) We might have to play There's Your Trouble. Okay, yeah, let's play a little There's Your Trouble because that just got me me in my bag when I listened to it.
I think probably, you know, and I didn't scribble notes, but I would say four or five songs on that album that are of that nature, which is not exactly how I remember that. You know, obviously I'm remembering wide open spaces. I'm, I'm thinking of it differently. But when I went back, I was surprised at how sort of like small, boring, intimate some of those songs felt. That's an interesting uh that's an interesting way Tell to think about wrong. it. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. It's cool. <laughs> no, I don't, I've I honestly have not seen that hot take yet. That's, so that's what we're here for. That's what we're here for. <laughs> but I just I was you know again I was just struck by how at the beginning of this group's career and obviously they were a, a band bef- before the first album but at the beginning of this group's recorded career there were these kind of these moments of intimate agony and now we have circled back and now we are still at moments of intimate agony which is not exactly what i think the in between records are always about in a way both ends of that spectrum that you're describing are kind of a way of talking about wanting to have it all or wanting to have kind of unlimited horizons in your life or in your relationships or being able to name your desires. I really think that that's part of how they were able to emerge and just build a pretty unprecedentedly broad audience and do, as I pointed out, I think it's 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 pretty interesting that they were on a George Strait Stadium tour and Lilith Fair as a headliner in the same year because you're catching two pretty different crowds in those two spaces. But I think the stakes are different when they take those themes up now because there's that sense of of having less patience, having been through a lot <laughs> and not being willing to put up with the same stuff in the same way, you know, which is what I want to hear from an artist at the phase in life and career that they're at now. To add to that too, like the different registers that they're coming from, like I think that with the early chicks, there was always, even even if something was sort of an intimate narrative, there was always this sense in a very classic country way that there's a universal identifiability going on there and you know that sense of them as a trio incarnating sort of women together as a general concept and then now you know there are songs on this album where it's, and you know i think that when we talk about this being a post miranda record and a post taylor record we also have to say it's a post lemonade record and like in similar ways to lemonade there are songs on this album where like there are things that happen that could not happen to the listener, right? Like just the way that lots of what happens on Lemonade <laughs> can kind of only happen to Beyonce. Like right. Things here happen oh, that can only point. happen to Natalie Maines. <laughs> you know, like we don't all have yeah. the experience of our rival coming back and saying they're our biggest fan at the Hollywood Bowl, right? Like that's a story <laughs> that happens to Natalie Maines. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I just yeah. want you to know I am recording this on my boat. I don't really understand the problem. What is? What exactly are you <laughs> <laughs> what are you what are you getting at exactly? And I mean that's okay because we understand who she is now, right? We have 20 years of knowing who she is and and who she is is important to us as listeners. So it's okay for us to identify with her unique story in a way that doesn't require the same kind of like open-endedness. And that's there in other ways on the record. But I think that like our investment in her story as kind of a a hero, a cultural hero makes the intimacy like registered just very differently here. That's a senior point of view, right? And some of my favorite songs on the record 
are like addressed to younger people, addressed to younger women, addressed to her sons. Yeah. Like there's all of that position, you know? I was just going to ask if you wanted to play a song that you particularly like. That was not one of the singles, which I'm not convinced are the best songs on the record, to be honest. Yeah, not necessarily. I mean, although, I mean, my favorite song on the record, Juliana, Calm Down, was one of the singles sort of belatedly. But like even the song right after that, Young Man, which kind of flips from the like women power thing to in a very country way. It's like, let's look at both sides of the gender spectrum. Like, and, but it's a very sweet song <laughs> from a woman worried about her sons being betrayed by their father and what kind of role yeah, models what, they how have. That, right. All that kind of thing. Right. Being socialized around flawed masculinity and sort yeah. of kind of hoping that they can grow past that. All right. Let's listen to a touch of young man. Young man, take a It's up to you. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with The New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good, but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. Julie, do you have a song that sticks with you that's, again, not one of the kind of obvious singles on this record? I heard For Her as another of the the songs where they're perspective-wise kind of speaking to their younger selves or an awareness of just this awareness that people have to start dealing with bullshit before they've built up the defenses to do so. And they have as much authority to write and sing about that sort of thing as anyone. Let's listen to a little bit of that. This is for her. Wish I could go back Tell my younger self You're a fighter You just don't know it yet So dig a little bit deeper And be a whole lot louder And a lot less guarded Cause it takes, it takes It takes a lot of hard work Tough girl, 
intimacy and the specificity of these narratives is so in keeping. And Carl, this is again what you alluded to. This is a broader trend in pop music. This is a broader trend that we see in the culture in terms of like people's relationship to famous people, like the levels of expectations of how much access we get to a famous person. So Natalie Maines leaning into that and really owning that while still maintaining some of the essence of the chicks is, is I feel like it's impressive. And just for the record, when we talked about the ranking earlier, wasn't trying to be glib. I do think this, <laughs> I do. I was, I do think it's a very good record. I don't love you everything. You can be glib if you want to be glib. It's I don't true. It, it's true. It is, it is. It's, you know, if you've listened to podcast, you, you know, I can be glib occasionally, but I wasn't in that case. I was in that case. Um, uh, I do think it's a very good record. There's songs on all the records. I don't love. I was sort of curious to hear, everybody else's perspective but hey that's cool don't worry about it <laughs> cool jam cool jam um i feel like i'm living in a lot of hypotheticals right so i'm gonna throw another hypothetical at you guys while we're talking about disrupted arcs and people picking up batons and things like that say what happened in, in 2003 doesn't happen say she doesn't say that on stage etc cetera, etc cetera. Where do you sense the group was going at that time? And in terms of the relationship with the rest of the genre, we know what was happening with the rest of the genre at that time. Extreme jingroism, like pre-bro bros, muscularity, all those things were really kind of coming into their own as a genre position. Was a split with country as a business and as a, a radio format, was that already what was going to happen, whether or not it was triggered by something like this? I think we forget that the cracks were already there in some ways in their business dealings because everything else sort of got obscured by that explosive thing that happened in 2003. But we forget that there were already things that they had done that really went beyond just kind of challenging the norms of how business is conducted in Nashville and what community participation looks like. Can you describe in a little more detail for those who don't know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they had already taken their disagreement with their label public in a way that was not a typical thing for country artists. You know, not that no artist had ever disagreed with their label, but that was something, <laughs> you know, that would be handled more generally more politely and gingerly, you know, behind closed doors, that kind of thing. And they took it public and made it known that they were in disagreement with Sony about the royalties that they'd been paid or that they hadn't been paid more to the point, you know, and they were making a show of talking to other labels while they were still in that Sony contract and kind of forcing their hands. So there was a lawsuit and a countersuit and all of that. And then they also joined a movement that was happening at the time with a lot of artists and other genres, including Courtney Love, who were publicly advocating and also testifying in California in a, a case there about these long recording contracts that just sort of kept them tied up and, and weren't fair. So they were doing that. And then they also already had had a public feud with 
Toby Keith, you know, there's this, when, when you were describing the kinds of songs that were speaking to the patriotic impulses of that moment, you know, Toby Keith had, had one that it was sort of the patriotic equivalent of talking to the world or to the, the <laughs> Middle East, you know? <laughs> the American girls and American guys will always stand up and salute. We'll always recognize when we see old glory flying. There's a lot of men dead so we can sleep in peace at night when we lay down our heads. My daddy served in the army. We lost his right eye, but he flew. That was the tone of it, you know? Like it was a kind of like tough and jolly and combative about it, you know? And she didn't like the song and said so. And then he responded to that. And then and then it just got so theatrical. I mean, they, you know, he was putting pictures of her and Saddam Hussein on the screen on his tour. And she was... He and she, her. <laughs> and she, she wore that F-U-T-K shirt and was, you know, coming up with all these different things that it supposedly stood for other than what everyone knew it stood for. And th- anybody- those were just... Has a, does anybody have a size X, an XL and an FTT shirt? Send me an those email. Are, those are just things that show. I mean, I mean, I forgot to mention too that it was. I think it was a pretty big deal that as part of that lawsuit with their label, they ended up shifting the responsibility of handling big portions of their career, other than the radio promotion part of it, to the New York office. So that's a big deal when you think about how somebody is marketed, how decisions are being made, you know, what their priorities are. So there were all of those things. And then their artistic evolution was also indicating that they were, you know, the fact that they went back to Texas and made this bluegrass album. Yeah, which I was just going to say. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's so interesting that at the at the moment where their credibility in, you know, quote unquote, is being challenged the loudest, the moment where they're most at odds with the Nashville mainstream is the moment that they make the most roots country historically aware album it's of like all trolling that's a that's some yeah. great trolling musical trolling right there oh my god <laughs> should we play something off of home because i just think like home i mean you were talking about uh, we talked a little bit about setting the table for miranda home to me is really setting the table for miranda in a in a major way let's play white trash wedding you can't afford no You can't afford no ring. I should be wearing white and you can't afford no ring. In the midst of everybody kind of realigning country aesthetics as being about bluster and bravado and is sort of like extreme masculinity and extreme jingoism. Here's this record that is just just a stone cold old fashioned country record that's better than almost all that other stuff. They were turning to all of these singer songwriters that they love that are more you know, known in kind of the folk side of things or the rootsy side of things, or I mean, some of them from Texas, but not all of them from Texas. So even in their song sources that 
kind of counts as going outside the the system in in some ways. So they probably would have just because the way that radio has been working has been so unfair to women. And because even in country music, artists do age out of the format, which tends to happen for women earlier than for men, you know. Don't tell that, that to George <laughs> Strait. What do you well, mean? I know, yeah. So that would have happened at some point. But, you know, the thing about those kinds of transitions is they they tend to seem a little bit more gradual than, you know, than just being dropped from all these stations kind of overnight. I mean, that's drastic. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I just kind of want to step in on a counterfactual there a little bit, because like there's a way of telling this story that makes it seem that all these things are inevitable. But like, it's easy to forget that, you know, in 2002, when Home came out, like, the chicks were the biggest thing in country. They were like the biggest thing in pop. They were, you know, they were enormous and they had the muscle to make these moves. Like, you know, they weren't making them from a position of, of weakness. And so like to, to predict how country radio and how country as a genre would have developed without that inflection point that like put them out of the story. I think we really can't know, like things could have gone very differently. Right. I mean, they forced the hand of of the industry and, and the radio format when they made that album. And and, it you know, those singles were played for a time. Yeah. You know, Traveling Soldier was played, you know, <laughs> so. Traveling Soldier was definitely played. And obviously that has some overlap with the, the sort of jingoism of the moment. Long Time Gone was was a hit. You know, they had Landslide, their version of Landslide, Landslide on there. That album did get radio airplay, you know, so. I'm looking up the numbers because I'm curious because I hadn't thought about it in a long time. Okay, long time gone. Number two, country. Landslide, number two, traveling soldier, number one, country. Long time gone and landslide, number seven on the Hot 100. Traveling soldier, 25, although that's obviously a little bit more uh, genre focused. So, yeah, to that point. Very, very popular. Dick's Chicks, not an unpopular group, even if they are uh, besieged, even if they are besieged and, and, and set upon by many, uh, not an unpopular group. Uh, let's talk. Well, it's important to remember because I do think when you have these kind of um, historical schisms, the thing that happened just before tend to get obscured. It's important to, to remind people that they mattered musically. They mattered Hugely. because of the way that they communicated to their audience, that's why they mattered first. And that's still why they matter, you know, but it is easy to lose that just because what happened to them was so unprecedented and has been covered more than anything else about their, their career. You know, when you start going back and, <laughs> and re rereading everything. Yet another reason to really go back and listen to those first three records, especially you really hear so much of the blueprint for what comes in the sort of two decades to follow in those records. Let's talk about the baton a little bit. We've sort of talked about other people kind of picking up on what the chicks had already kind of put into motion. We sort of alluded to Casey and Miranda and Taylor. Are there artists, specific artists or specific songs that jump to your guys' minds when you think, ah, yes, that's like very clearly post Dixie Chicks. Well, here's here's something that 
that I had in mind that might be slightly less obvious when I mentioned Casey Musgraves, the early phases of then, you know, the Dixie Chicks, they were doing the the Texas circuit and they were wearing kind of, you know, kitschy vintage cowgirl clothes. And that is in some ways very, very similar to the early performing world that Casey Musgraves came up in. And I think that the really knowing way that she has used those kitschy markers and vintage markers of, I mean, visually, sonically, in every way, you know, I mean, there are resonances there. And then also in the tone of voice and in her songwriting. But I remember when I heard Maddie and Tay do their really witty (laughs) song, Girl in a Country song, and first heard them talking about being influenced by the chicks. I said to myself, well, that makes a hell of a lot of sense. I mean, and the other obvious sort of legacy thing that comes to mind is the country women supergroups of the past several years, right? Like with the Pistol Annies and the High Women, they're directly appealing, I think, to the image and the, and the feeling, you know, the sort of chicks rule feeling of, of the early Dixie Chicks and bringing that back, that sense of solidarity between women back into country music. And the writing's in a, in a quite a different pitch and f- from a slightly different perspective and style, but the image and the, and the sense of women together presenting harmonies, writing together, all of that, that, you know, that's, that's very much a a revival of of what the Dixie Chicks stood for. Oh, definitely. The solidarity and, you know, they're not just standing next to each other, but they're making that dynamic felt, the sense of mutuality. And of course, in the case of the Chicks, that had a lot to do with instrumental musicianship as much as harmony singing and songwriting and and that kind of thing, showcasing personalities, but also making it feel like it matters to what they're doing, that they have the connection that they have with each other and the mutual respect and the fun that they have together. It's interesting because even though that is their long-term legacy, it's it's sort of unfortunate how much of that was erased in that immediate time period after 03. And it was striking, as you know, as we all saw Taylor in her documentary talking about not wanting to get Dixie checked. Like this is a thing that sort of been drilled into the heads of female country singers, young country singers, potentially politically minded country singers. And it kind of it really underscores how much we lost sight of, yes. The Dixie Chicks were politically provocative in a way that was uncomfortable to the genre at the time. But also, the Dixie Chicks, especially on the second record, on all of them, but especially on the second record, are just an incredibly raucous, rowdy, fun time. They are thoughtful, they are generative, and they are also incredibly fun. And I think Goodbye Earl is kind of the pinnacle of all of the things that they do. How did it take until now for you to bring Goodbye Earl up? I, mean, <laughs> I know. I felt like I was I was exercising restraint. I thought I was doing a good job. Of exercising <laughs> but I mean, I, again, Goodbye Earl is all of those things. It's all the things that the Dixie Chicks were both praised for and maligned for, remembered for and forgotten about all in this one song. So yes, we are going to play part of Goodbye Earl, but really just, I mean, hell, take a break from Copcast, go listen to the whole damn thing, and then come back. This is <laughs> no, Goodbye No, watch Earl. the video. Watch the oh, video. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Please, <laughs> watch the video. We'll wait. We'll wait for you. Right away, Mary Ann flew in from Atlanta on a red 
crucial topic. Incredibly well-written song, both lyrically and musically. Spectacular execution. And also a tremendous amount of fun and enjoyment in this record. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what do you... It's over. It's (laughs) done. There's nothing else to say. (laughs) No, I think it did come along at a time when Martina McBride had done Independence Day and Garth Brooks had obviously also sung about domestic violence, a song that told that kind of story. And then we had this whole legacy of vicious, violent murder ballads stretching back generations. But I feel like Goodbye Earl, because it was so witty, their delivery, if you go back and if you look on YouTube and find the version of it that the group that recorded it before them, their version was not as dynamic or witty. I mean, I think it just deserved to be sung by by women who were just, who could summon wit and anger and who were skilled at kind of modulating their tone and making it taunting and doing all the things that you would want in a murder ballad between best friends <laughs> like a best <laughs> I mean the the female the female friendship aspect of it you know that it was a friend helping her friend out who had been abused by her husband putting a little poison in those black eyed peas you know yeah, and then you get a nice little nice little plot of land get start to sell it to farmers you know you have a nice life together after farm to table a happy yeah. happy farm to table ending sort of very thing. early very early farm to table <laughs> energy very big big that's true very farmer's market energy 2000, <laughs> 2000, for, 2000 for 99 or whatever year that was yeah <laughs> so do you think this is it for the chicks like is this is this a wrap like just if we're speculating I don't know. I mean, that whole stretch where they were only selectively active, you know, and we had the Courtyard Hounds and had the one, you know, Natalie Maine's solo album. It seemed like they had kind of different levels of interest in making music. It has always seemed like maybe since Emily and Marty had been performing their entire lives from such a young age, performing in competitions and professionally performing, busking and that kind of thing. They just really come across as tried and true in it for the long haul performers. So even if they're not doing things together, you know, I mean, I would expect to see them doing something, but I feel like I want another... I want to see what they will do if they don't have a label to answer to. Not that they were letting someone dictate to them what they should be doing. But, you know, I mean, I I came upon this bit of information that I've not fact-checked, so I don't know if it's (laughs) accurate or not. But uh, is is podcast widely understood to be the place where you can float unverified information? Oh, come on. (laughs) All right. Just uh, just wondering. But it was on a on like a fan for an old fan forum where I was doing research. And and someone said that when they were signed to Monument at the beginning, you know, the beginning of their the major label portion of their career, that they were initially going to be positioned more as an alt country type of act, like, you know, kind of building more off of 
the rootsy circuit that they had been playing because they did have a lot of popularity before that. So who knows what they could or would want to do. I I want to know. I want to see, you know, what they'll do if they're freed up in terms of their label situation. One thing that I would add, and this kind of jumps back to what we were talking about, about hearing them sing about relationships on this album versus hear, hearing them sing about relationships on the first album. On this album, I feel like, and I think, Carl, you said something to this effect, I feel like I'm hearing individuals adults, humans sing about real life problems. And because of that, I'm like more conscious than ever before of these three people as adults in the world who have had struggles and gone through problems. And yeah, it's nice that we're in the chicks. That's cool that we're in this band, but also we've got a hundred other things that we're worried about. And I feel like the the intense individuality of a lot of this music, specificity, I should say, of a lot of this music, makes me wonder if, not that performing as the Chicks or working an album is an inconvenience, but it's also one of a bunch of things that they've got going on. I think that we also have to go back to the incident and the way that that distorted Natalie's position in relationship to the rest of the band. Like, it's it's hard for them to, like, be an equal trio. I mean, they were never exactly an equal trio, but that definitely got blown out of the the water by the way that Natalie became this kind of larger than life symbolic figure. And I think that's, you know, now that she's been through this hairpin pin turn in her personal life, you know, who knows what choices she wants to make next, but I, there's definitely that tension present there, you know, obviously has been for a long time. Yeah. And I feel like it's been alluded to uh, directly or indirectly when they've done interviews I, I do wonder if they they envision a future as a unit. That's that's certainly I'm curious about. I mean, when you go back and listen to or read or watch interviews that that they did through that time, a lot of the time it feels like in a very uncomfortable way that their interviewers were sort of trying to get Emily and Marty to take a step back or disavow <laughs> or lay blame on Natalie, you know, which oh, is interesting. which is interesting. completely, you know, un- unfair. And I think there's a gendered aspect to the way that they were trying to say they're they're really divided. They don't have true unity. They're they're caddy within their within their trio, which wasn't I don't think there was any evidence to support that at all, but it's worth going back and rewatching the documentary because all of that footage behind the scenes, you can see them, you know, the kinds of conversations that they were having as they were wrestling through what statements do we make in singular voice and what statements do we make in collective voice and reassuring Natalie that she had not screwed things up for them, but had in a very real way liberated them and set them on a new course. And I think that they really admirably carried through the groupness of the group, the solidarity, you know, it feels very real. And it also feels very real that they went off and lived their lives and did other stuff for so long, even if that might not have been the original plan, and then came back together now. So I hope that if it's happened once, it could happen again. Yeah, and I feel like it would be a like perfectly happy story if they just toured 
periodically and then you know yeah every dozen years or so maybe a new record like that would be perfectly fine for a band in their position and then you know whatever else they want to do on the side not like we get to we don't get to say what the, <laughs> we don't get to say what they get to yeah. i'm pretty sure wait, about why that are we, why are we here wait why do we do this whole episode if not that? Um, julie i haven't watched the interviews that you're referring to but i can kind of imagine what they were like in that specific time moment and just as we're closing out, it does remind me a little bit about the ways in which people, and this is true in the media for sure, sometimes tend to consciously or often unconsciously echo narratives around patriotism and jingoism and the idea that you would want to somehow suss out if there's a patriot in the Dixie Chicks, you know, like, oh, Natalie is saying this, but surely, surely Emily and Marty, you guys must feel differently. There is this way that that's the media echoing kind of like a narrative that was very popular in country music in that time and also in the wake of 9-11 in the country at the time. And it's just something I, I want us to be mindful of, both as members of the media and also as we're watching our current political moment. We'll have to do a whole other episode if you want to really dig into how they were seen and how they were framed, the chicks, I mean, from the beginning to the end, you know, ways in which they were not taken seriously enough or were undermined or whatever, or the fact that, yeah, when they tried to start making statements in response to the controversy, they were trying to emphasize that they supported the troops and that they were patriotic. But it was, I guess, a complicated statement to say, yes, but. (laughs) Well, that was also very early. That was a very early hair splitting thing where people would say, I don't support the war, but I do support support the troops. That was something that you, you saw like, a lot of celebrities sort of trying to toe a line because look, this is obviously pre Twitter, pre proto cancel culture, pre actual cancel culture, pre cancel culture is not a real thing, but people are, are getting in trouble, whatever you <laughs> want to call it. You know, this is basically, this is very, very pre all of that. And you saw a lot of like left leaning public figures trying to figure out how to speak on situations like this without alienating everybody. And that became kind of a fudge like a very kind of unsatisfying fudge, I think, at the time. Yeah, and in their case, that's why the term, well, the verb to be Dixie-chicked came into parlance. And I still hear it used all, all the time. I mean, there are you know lots of artists that they see it as a cautionary tale, what can be said or how it can be said. And, and they keep that in mind and have to figure out how to work with that. Now, now they're just going to be saying you're going to get lady aid. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. To, thank you, Julie. Thank you, Carl. I appreciate you guys calling in. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot, John. That is our show. Listen to every podcast ever at nytimes.com slash podcast. Get on the Facebook group. Talk about being gaslit. Talk about uncomfortable personal intimate songs that you are fans of on the facebook group email podcast subscribe to podcast anywhere you get your audio content apple podcast spotify etc our producer as always pedro rosado from headstepper media as we go out let's listen to the last song on gaslighter an interesting thing about gaslighter is so many of the songs even though they are about being 
heartbroken, being wounded, being victimized by somebody, there is this kind of recurrent note of hope. And Set Me Free is interesting because it's placing some of the responsibility for being able to move on in the hands of the person who's done you wrong and, and trying to have a little empathy for their position. It's an interesting note to end this record on. It's not lined up with emotionally necessarily with the tenor of all the other songs, but it is a very, very beautiful song. It's a great closing song to this album. So let's go out this week with Set Me Free. <laughs> 